This is a podcast from ABC Overnights. Here's Trevor Chappell. Recently in an interview, Will Smith, the actor, said, I think as much as we want to believe that love is the greatest human motivator, he said, I don't think it is, I think it's fear. Peter Ellington is the director of the University of Queensland's Critical Thinking Project and joins us on the program. Hello, Peter. Hello, how are you going? Um, Peter, do you think that fear is a greater motivator than love or um, or, or non-fear, for want of a better term? Well, not necessarily, but I think if you want a reliable outcome, then it possibly is um, for most people. It's, um, you know, it's pretty ingrained into us biologically that we uh, are strongly motivated by fear, uh, be it of a... Uh, an impending sense of doom, or be it a, a physical presence, whatever it might be, it's, a, it's one of the most fundamental and powerful of human drivers. So I, I think it's an incredibly effective tool for any uh, politician or other to uh, to use. So when we talk about the politics of fear, it's the it's politicians taking advantage of that motivator. Indeed, yes, that's what we were talking about. Um, understanding what sort of things could could spark those urges in us and using those to maximum effect. Is it a new thing? No. No, I don't think it's new at all. I think it's um, it's, it's very, very old. Um, I, I think also very, very old is the recognition that there are better ways to do it. Um, so, <laughs> excuse me, these two things have been going on in our history for a very long time. Uh, one, the appeal to fear, and two... The, um, appeal to something better uh, and uh, I guess we're, we're still tussling. Let's take a look at historically when do we see the the politics of fear and politicians using fear historically and to 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 huge success? Well there's, there's any number of circumstances you can point to um, that that go back to antiquity so I, I, I don't think you know, there's a long litany of, of potential uh, 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 selections, but uh, people tend to have the idea that that this is new. Um, they tend to think that perhaps you know the 1930s America was something a bit different, but it wasn't. If you read some of the the, uh, the rhetoric going on around then, it was tremendously scaremongering. Uh, so I, I think it's just been a fundamental part of of our um, political discourse. Um, we, we possibly had some improvement. Um, a few decades ago, in which in which there wasn't quite that 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 mass hysteria whipping up, there was a sort of politeness to the to the public um, um, discourse. But uh, we, we seem to have uh, lost that. Now it's uh, it's all holds barred. Is what we saw with Hitler and, and, and in Nazi Germany a good example of what the politics of fear is? Is that you need to have somebody to be frightened of to be able to 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 separate and polarise the community? Well, they're extreme examples, of course, and, and indeed they are. Um, you know, our fear of the other is something that's driven us for a long time. Uh, we always be with us. And uh, what, what, what Hitler and his cohorts did so beautifully was to uh, direct that fear um, to a very, very specific end. And, um, you know, that the, the, the thing about, uh, I guess, politics nowadays too is that uh, whereas there are some very nefarious ends, quite often the only end is getting the politicians into power. So um, 
you know, it, it's, it's not necessarily towards a specific program, but an ideology, right or wrong, it's really about staying in power um, more often than not. And I think that's what's um, a little bit disturbing about politics at the moment, the, the real craving for power on the part of politicians rather than necessarily the promoting of particular agendas. So is it almost the, the using of that... Um of the fear of politics to get into power and then you don't necessarily follow through on those agendas that you're talking about? Well, uh, you know, Machiavelli said that the uh, the first duty of a prince was to maintain power because um, without power you can't do anything. Uh, and you, you, you see that uh, echoed in modern political language with phrases like, well, you can't do anything from opposition. So, you know, your first job, no matter what you think is, is the best course of action for, say, a country, your first job is to get into power so you can therefore enact that policy. Uh, so really it's whatever you have to, by that rationale, whatever you do to get into power is, is, is a necessary condition. And then your second job is to stay in power. So whatever you have to do, and I guess the policy comes poor third sometimes. It's interesting when you take a look at, um, and this can be for, through state governments, through federal governments and also in international politics, state governments love to talk about, especially because they have uh, the the ability to talk about in uh, basically police enforcement and law and order, and they say that we're going to be the ones that will keep you safer more than the other lot, so if you elect us, we'll keep you safer. Even though if you look at the statistics and the realities that the cases of uh, of assaults or the cases of breaking and entering may be statistically a lot lower, we will say that we can protect you more. So the truth isn't necessarily the driving factor. Oh, goodness, no. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of literature around today suggesting the world is a much safer place than it's ever been. Um, uh, backs of terrorism in Europe are actually lower than they were um, a few decades ago, if you factor in the IRA and such things. So... Um, the, the harsh realities are, are that um, you know things for, for many of us are, are getting much better, but that doesn't sell newspapers. And um, what I, what is far more effective uh, for politicians and for those who support them is to is to whip up some um, some flames and ride the thermals. So uh, it, it's far more a matter of reality. So is the media just as responsible as politicians for driving a, a politics of fear? Well, look, that's, that's a, a debatable point. Uh, personally, yes, I think so. Um, I, I, I find it very hard to accept the argument the media simply reflects what people want to, want to hear. Um, I also find it very hard to accept the argument that um, uh, the media is only reporting what politicians um, so I think that the, that the media is um, a, a major player in people's perceptions. Um, you look at the front pages of, of, of newspapers now, and uh, you know I, I, I was quite remarked. Uh, I remarked to someone recently at a, a local paper in Queensland for the first time in I, I couldn't count how long the front page was a positive story. And uh, you know, that's that's what gets out there to sell. So I think the media, the media has a very deliberate role to play in this, and a very um, a very important one. I've got a text here that, that says divide and rule still lives. Media are the protagonists. Um, politicians now just follow. Is that the whole idea of divide and rule an essential part of this type of politics? 
Well, I don't know about divide and rule as a specific um, tactic. I, I think certainly polarise. Uh, and it's not so much, I think, that you want everyone divided against each other. But the, the flavour of politics, certainly in Australia over the last few years, has been to polarise um, and to um, uh, make the ends of the spectrum, the political spectrum, um, uh, more extreme than they have been before and, and, in fact, more mainstream than they have been before. So um, the division, I think, we see is not, not one that's intended to, to pit us against each other, um, although it does. I think it's rather intended to try and make politicians seem more emphatic about uh, their positions. Peter, is it also taking a look at extremes from both sides and making that to be the perception of what the norm is? Well, normalising extreme views is a stated goal of quite a few uh, media players. Um, you know, the, the, the more normalised extreme views become, the, the more centrist politicians who used to hold extreme views seem. So I think that's certainly a tactic, yes. Paul, good morning. I believe, I believe that politicians are using fear and he's skirting around the issues a little bit. It's just about control. And all they do is they believe that 90% of the population are sheep anyway and it's just trying to corral them into the right paddock so they can get them to do what they want to do. If you have a look at Hitler, Hitler did exactly the same thing. He used the fear, he used that, and then he actually took them down through the fear, then he brought them up through, I can show you a better path. Is there, there's a need for people to believe in it, though, Paul. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but the biggest motivator is fear. Yeah, is it a form of control, Peter? Well, certainly it is. I, I think Paul's got a point there. Um, and, you know, it's much easier to control people who are scared than it is to control people who can think rationally because we know, we know from lots and lots of research that um, the more scared we are, the more our rational brain shuts down. And politicians aren't fond of having us think for ourselves because we might end up in places they don't want us to be. So they're more, much happier to lead us um, along those paths. To be able to do that, though, you need for the information to get out there. So is there a need for there to be a grain of truth to then be able to be exaggerated or to be elaborated on and then put out there so that you can get more people to follow? Well, as they say, the most effective lies are the ones that contain a grain of truth. Um, look, it, it's, it's, I don't think it's, it's quite so... It's quite like that anymore. I think it's more about spin. How do we frame this so that we can establish our point of view? Um, you know, there, there have been some masterstrokes in, in Australian politics um, over the last few decades. Um, and I, I think, you know, one of the classic ones would be um, reframing immigration as national security. Um, because once you change that terminology, those words, you change the way people think and feel about the issue. And that's far more manipulative than, um, than just stating the facts. When the facts are pointed out, though, and are placed under the spotlight and it's proven to be wrong, it doesn't necessarily change the perceptions. And we've seen that with Donald Trump, that he can basically say whatever he likes now. Uh, well, so it appears, and it doesn't really matter because if you're going to follow, then you will follow. Well, that's the case. And, and, and so many politicians are already speaking to their own bases uh, who have made up their minds regardless. But this is about the narrative that people spin themselves to, um, what makes sense in our world. And, and 
how Donald Trump, for example, might be written as a hero into our own personal stories about the world or a villain, depending on what it is. And once we've got those stories, those narratives, um, it's very hard to change them. And, and what you see um, can simply um, act as confirming instances either way. A great example of this is something like um, um, gun laws in the States. You know, people now are polarised on that issue, of course. And it's now to the state that uh, a mass shooting in the States or anywhere is a confirming instance both for those who think that gun laws should be tightened and those who think that there shouldn't be gun laws because they've written their own narratives, their own stories, and everything seems to fit into their own stories. And so, um, you know, that's the thing that, that, that makes almost anything possible nowadays. My guest is Peter Ellerton, who's the director of the University of Queensland's Critical Thinking Project. Uh, we'll go back to some calls. Uh, Richard, good morning. My thoughts on uh, this uh, bringing in fear, uh, I'm sure that uh, if you... Uh, look over the years, uh, you can look back to Menzies uh, when he uh, committed troops to Vietnam, uh, He uh, there was fear that uh, the um, communists would uh, come down and overtake Australia on the domino theory. And um, when you uh, look into history, uh, the um, Vietnamese and the Chinese were very much opposed uh, to each other, uh, and uh, I, I feel that uh, if you look back there, uh, Menzies resigned soon after he committed the troops, but uh, we were told that uh, it was a very important uh, need for us to go into Vietnam and fight uh, to stop the communists from coming down, and uh, I feel that um, over the years... Uh, the um, media uh, go along with all this fear. Uh, I think that um, if you look recently, uh, if you um, look at the politics, there was fear uh, brought into the last campaign about uh, the um, people, the boat people coming over, uh, and uh, it, it was brought in very close to the last election, only in the last few days of the election and uh, I think that uh, it's it's used by both sides uh, it's uh, not only one side and also uh, there's a lot of fear brought uh, through uh, treating prisoners harshly instead of uh, looking at why prisoners are prisoners uh, and uh, where in our society we have uh, drug and alcohol problems. Richard, we're moving off into another area, but thank you because I want to just pick up on a few things that you pointed out there, Peter. Uh, for a while there, it was the communists, and that was the thing that we had to fear the most. Oh, yeah. Um, well, you know, it doesn't have to be um, personal fears or collective fears, fears of you know, the, uh, the our way of life under threat type of fear, which is, of course, a very effective one um, for politicians. Um, fear comes in all forms, and that's quite right. This is these are these are classic examples. Uh, whether or not, I mean, at one point it was communist. At the moment, it's it's Muslims. At one point, it was Asians. There, there seems to be a need for there to be a group to be able to target, and generally a minority group, because it's easier to target a minority group than it is a majority. 
Oh, for sure. And of course, there's no point targeting the majority because the majority are the voters. So, uh, <laughs> That's true. You've got to, to polarise someone against someone else. Um, and and that stuff is very effective. It makes it makes the story the politicians tell able to be said in slogans. And I think this is an important one too. Just keep keep hammering home particular slogans, make it simplistic, make it against the group. And um, this is this is what generates the sense of the other I was speaking about earlier. Uh, the, the fact that the others are threatening you, <coughs> are threatening your way of life, are threatening your, your financial security, are, are, are threatening your family, whatever it might be. And you, you're quite right to run off that long list and it might have included the Irish as well. Yeah, that's true. Uh, in Australia. Uh, Mackenzie, good morning. We protested against them back in the 60s. I mean, even the politicians in the sphere against this, you know, they locked us up and um, we tied ourselves to trees. They undid us and made us go to prison. I mean, some of my relations were Irish and, I mean, they were very fearful of politicians. I mean, politicians have got to be stopped. I mean, they've got, it is a free country. We do have the right to vote in who we want and who we don't want, but yet politicians are still using fear tactics by... If you don't do this, we will do that. Or but the, we'll... Mackenzie, the thing is that politicians that use the, the politics of fear get elected. They do. I mean, I don't know how because there's stupid people out there that will continually vote people in that will do the wrong thing. Mackenzie, I don't know if it's stupid people because we're talking about an awful lot of people. And the issue there, Peter, is, is that we may disagree with it. However as a tactic for politics, or is it really just a reflection of what people are thinking? Well, I don't think um, that people are necessarily thinking that deeply in the way we might understand the word thinking. Um, this, is, this is a fascinating issue of human psychology, I think, that, that you know, humans are, are almost never stumped, as the psychologist Daniel Kahneman points out. Um, we always have an answer for... Uh, any issue, you know, what do you think about position X? Well, well let me tell you. Uh, you know, we always have an opinion on on any issue. Um, it's pretty unusual to say, well, look, I'm not really sure. Let me go away and read something or talk to someone who knows about it, and I'll form an opinion later. You know, we normally come straight out and and do this. And um, Carl Jung noted that people always prefer to judge rather than think. Um, judging is an is an immediate and satisfying thing to do. Uh, thinking is much more difficult and takes a lot of information and hard work. Um, and so, you know, when we say to someone, what do you think about an issue, we're not always meaning, what do you think? We, we might be saying, what's your judgment on this? And that judgment can come from all sorts of places, uh, and these places can be quite sensitive to manipulation um, uh, by fear. And so I think this is the path that, that um, sophisticated manipulators travel uh, they don't want us to think about issues. And so uh, people have busy lives. Uh, we don't have always time to think. And as you say, there's, there's information out there, but it's, it's sometimes difficult to see. Sometimes it doesn't fit with our narratives. So we rather judge. And um, I think that's what happens to uh, the majority of the population during elections. Interesting text here from Andrew, who's in New York, who says, I'm an Australian living in New York City. I'm 12,000 times more likely to be killed by a gunman here than I am a terrorist. You'd never know that, as the fear in which the American people live under is prescribed by the leaders of the country. And that's a very good example of the facts of statistics in comparison to what people actually fear. Oh, absolutely. I, I read that statistic myself uh, just yesterday. Uh, and you're more likely to be killed by a toddler with a gun than a terrorist. So 
So, <laughs> in the face of this information, it seems ridiculous what we actually are afraid of. Yeah. Uh, Matt, good morning. I'd just like to agree with uh, your first caller. I think it was Paul and Richard. Um, we seem to think that uh, there's a big problem with boat people and the, you know, nasty boat people, yet they only represent 1% of the illegals in the country. Why, why aren't we concentrating on the people that fly into the country? Well, you see, this is, these are the facts, though, Matt, but it's not what the perception is from people out there. So why is it that the facts aren't actually recognised and that we see that more and that it's spoken about more by, um, by shock jocks, for want of a better term, than what is the reality? Well, I think if you watch the news in Australia and then you watch the news in Canada, you get a total di totally different perspective. The news in Canada is very positive, very upbeat, whereas the news in Australia is doom and gloom and woe is me. And, you know, you have the media programming the sheep and then, you know, the politicians jump on their back and just uh, say, yep, we want you to consume and conform and... Uh, yeah, basically uh, be scared so that we can control you. Matt, the thing is, that the f it's not that the facts aren't out there. People are too lazy to look for them. And is, is that what the issue is, Peter, is that the, the, the facts are there, but it's easier to just consume what you're given? Well, it's easier to consume what you're given, but it's also easier, as I say, to stick with your existing narrative and... If you know, your, your worldview that you've carefully built up over many years is in conflict with new information, it's much easier to find reasons to disregard the information than it is to assimilate it. So it's, it's, it's not just that a, a group of people with the same facts will arrive at the same conclusion. We simply know that's not the case. Uh, we have our, our, um, our, our stories we tell ourselves and the way in which we make sense and meaning of the world is, is all bound up in this. It's, it's not just a matter of simply algorithmically processing facts to arrive at a conclusion um, and if, if we say look we just need to get more information out there I think we're missing the point that um, we are more complex than that or if you prefer more simple than that Peter, the, the, I mean we love to blame the internet for everything, all the ills of the world but within this case is the, is the, the internet very good at dispersing uh, misinformation so that you can actually get a message and send it out there even though it might be completely wrong but it will be taken in by large groups of people well um, of course and the classic example of this is the, the call by uh, the anti-vaccine lobby to do your own research uh, which means simply you know go and read all the blogs that um, people post their opinions on and uh, that passes nowadays for, for research so um, this, this comes back to an old problem about filtering out useful and um, good information from all the nonsense that's out there. So certainly information is, is flowing far more freely than it ever has, um, but all information, um, useful, not useful, uh, wrong, right, and uh, there's, there's our challenge is to, uh, to look at um, how, we, how we consume that. I remember getting a, we were, I can't remember what the conversation was, but years ago there was a conversation that we had and a listener phoned in to say one of the biggest problems he saw was that uh, people who came here illegally as, re as refugees got more money than pensioners did. And I said, how do you know that? And he said, oh, because I read it on the internet. And it's true, I read it on the internet. And then when we did yeah. the research, it was totally wrong. However, there's, well, this, there's this really yeah. strong belief that, that, that is out there that that is a fact. Well, I mean, a couple of things. Of course, it's not illegal to seek asylum. Yes, yeah. But, but um, you know, that, that person had clearly, um, as I say, had their own particular worldview squarely in place 
and anything that comes along that agrees with that um, will be you know assimilated taken in processed repeated anything that comes along that doesn't will be uh, will be dismissed so this is a kind of inertia we have about our our, our positions um, it's not just the facts that will do it it's, it's, what, it's what we think about them these are these are these are powerful stories that give our lives meaning and um, we're not going to change that necessarily just for one pesky fact I've got a couple of texts here. I, did, I attended Mass on the week on a weekly basis, and I do feel a bit of anxiety about a terrorist coming to Australia. It happened in France. It happened at the Lindt Cafe. These things are real. It's not likely, but it's on people's minds, which is a good point that Larry makes. Well, indeed, um, and it's, it's always been likely. Um, not likely, I should say, you know, with equal probability. I mean, nothing much has changed in terms of your chances of getting... Um, killed by terrorist action. Um, so I think what we're, we're missing there is not that it's, it's now likely, and that at one stage it wasn't. It's just that it really hasn't changed that much. Um, there's always, and, of course, that's totally buried among the other potential causes of death that are going to meet you in Australia um, statistically. So um, yeah, it's still not much of an argument. Uh, Gillian, good morning. Good morning. I think as you get older in life, you take all the crap that comes out of the news with a pinch of salt. I don't think you get fear. You register fear at all. I'm 91 in December, and the whole outfit in the world at the moment, it might sound odd to you, I find highly amusing. I mean, they're heading for finishing themselves off by their silly behaviour. But they still carry on, and I think we're, we're living in an atmosphere at the moment where nutters can let rip where they like in any nation. And there's so many people on the move out of their own countries into other countries at the moment, and they land up somewhere they don't fit in, they gang up in groups and, and get dissatisfied, and locals treat them with apprehension apprehension and there you have a situation where it's not fear it's resentment and you wonder where the heck our leaders are taking us the way they carry on this is an interesting point um jillian thank you and the role of leadership um, Peter, and because we hear that a lot as far as the conversations are concerned, that we're looking for leaders who can lead us in the right direction and will be pointing out what the facts are. Well, I mean, I think that's a terrific idea. Um, we, uh, you know, when we talk about the right direction, of course, we have to define that direction. I think that's part of the problem. Um, the leaders are choosing directions that will make use of, of fear um, rather than um, leading for actions that are soundly backed by um, evidence and rational um, justifications. Um, you know, I, I haven't really seen, I don't think, argumentation as an art in politics since perhaps Paul Keating. I think Malcolm Turnbull had a bit of a go at it, but got pretty soundly beaten down by his colleagues. Um, and so, you know, the promise that he showed, in large part, was a promise not to simply appeal to fear, but to appeal to our rationality. And I think we like that. We liked that he said that, and we were looking for something that he might be able to, to give us along those lines. But um, unfortunately, that hasn't happened. Uh, Tom, good morning. How much is the politics of fear 
tied up with political correctness. The point I'd like to bring up is that Sonia Kruger just recently, she made a statement about immigration or an opinion, and we were basically going to sell tickets to burn her at the stake. So what are you pointing out that people have a right to be able to speak their mind and to openly debate issues and put forward their, their comments? That's basically what I'm trying to say, Trevor. I think, yeah, um, yeah. But then, you know, she made a statement like that. Well, you know, the shock jocks all got on her, on her case. Uh, people wanted her sacked and all sorts of things like that. And, and, you know, yeah, you can't voice an opinion now. Is that politics of fear or, you know, political correctness gone mad? Yeah, the, the, I mean, you hear this a lot, Peter, in that the, uh, I guess it comes down to, and the extreme part of that is hate speech and being able to, to voice an opinion and whether or not you get knocked down for speaking those opinions. And the other side of that is if you don't express those opinions, then you don't have an open debate. Well, it depends what you mean by debate, of course, but um, I don't think there's anything wrong with anyone saying anything they want. I think that's that's perfectly fine in most cases, um, or at least in most cases that we tend to talk about in the media, and, and the one that was just mentioned is a good example. Um, but if we advocate that people have the right to say these things, then we must advocate logically for the people um, who want to reply. Um, and to say that she's not allowed to say it is simply false, uh, because she is. Um, but by the same principle, those who oppose her views are allowed to comment on that. Um, so, you know, you can't, you can't just say everyone's allowed to say what they want and nobody's allowed to come back and criticise because that's a misunderstanding of the principle at work. Um, more than that, um, people have the right to say these things, but they don't necessarily have the right to be heard. Uh, because communication is a two-way street and, you know, they can say whatever they want. We don't have to listen. Um, we can if we want to. Um, we can engage if we want to, but we don't have to. So um, I, I don't think there's a problem with with, 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 um, with Sonia or, or Pauline Hanson or anyone else making these comments, but the same principle that allows them to make those comments and the same principles that allows people to respond in whatever way they wish. Now, that doesn't mean that we're talking about being able to vilify them, but we can respond to it in whatever way uh, you know we think is a, is a meaningful way. And the question there is, especially with, with the media, how much people like Sonia Kruger or, or Pauline Hanson or other people are encouraged to put forward those views because it will make good press, it will make good TV, or it'll make good entertainment? Yeah, I don't know that they're encouraged to make I don't seem to need much encouragement. Okay, um, to make the, those views, I think they're already they're already there, and those views already ha always have been there. Um, it's not as if these are new views. There's always been a fear of the other, one way or the other. But um, uh, you know, we, we we tend to manufacture the issue of freedom of speech out of this um, when it really isn't one. I mean, they are free to say these things. No one's no one's saying they shouldn't be. But you always, you, um, I mean, I listen to a lot of radio over a, a lot of radio stations, and you hear continuously people saying, "Oh, we're not allowed to say what we think, and we're not allowed to 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 speak out against things." But you do hear it a lot. You hear it an awful lot. <laughs> but there's a, a lot of a people lot of... saying that they're not being heard, but they're being heard a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's a, something to point out to them, I think. Um, but again, you can't you can't have the you can't claim the principle for yourself and deny it to somebody else. 
So, you know, they're allowed to respond to what you say as much as you're allowed to say what you want to say. Um, you know, this is not a protected thing. Uh, Andrew, everyone's Joy. entitled. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's a good. We'll come back to that. Andrew, good morning. I agree with your first call, mate, that the politicians use fear to you know, control the population. Yeah, at the moment, they're bashing the Muslims at the moment. If everyone really got their heads together, there's only one race on this planet. That's the human race. It's not all these different races like the blacks and the yellows and the pinks and the blues and whatever you want. We all bleed the same colour. We all are brought up pretty similar to, you know, love each other, do this. But as soon as they use fear and start saying, oh, these people are bad and this people, the people that are really bad, I believe, are the ones that are leading us. Why do you think it's so successful, though, Andrew? Just driven, because it's driven through the media and it's been bashed into generation after generation, like it got bashed in my father's head, got bashed into my grandparents' head. We've bashed into them people beforehand. Now, it's just been passed down from generation to generation. And if the people start to wake up, we can have a bit more control back in our lives and have a bit more to say on what happens with us. But each time that they allow, the people allow the politicians to make a new law, each time they make a new law, they take a little bit of our rights away from us. Andrew... they stopped teaching the Constitution in 1975 in the schools to dumb down the population on what actually are our rights. Andrew, I like. I want to talk to Peter about the generational issue. Do you think, Peter, that generationally things will change as well? I think that young people who are in their, I don't know, 16 through to 25 uh, are more media savvy and possibly not as reliant on being told what to think by politicians or by the media. Um, well, that, that may be the case. I, I really don't know um, if it is, but... I, I don't think 16 to 25 year olds, while they may be, while they may be information rich compared to um, the previous generation, I don't know that they're any better at sifting through that information, or any better at, at um, coming to decisions rationally than anyone else is. Uh, just because you immerse yourself in a digital information rich environment doesn't mean that you know what to do with it properly. Mm. And uh, I think that's something to, to be cautious of. Uh, a taxi is saying politicians like the people uh, like the people to be feared en masse in order to pass new laws and legislation so people feel safer. It's a wonderful tactic that's used, like all the new terror-related laws and border force protection laws, creating mass fear creates mass control. Again, it's that whole idea of control, Peter. It certainly is, and uh, you know, I guess you, you can't you can't have a, a show like this without mentioning um, George Orwell and his uh, novel 1984, in which, in which the population was controlled primarily through, through fear, or at least focused through fear, we might say. And, um, you know, that, that, that their reality was totally a, a function of how their rulers wanted it framed. And we have rulers now who can't get away with that because we have a democratic framework. Um, that doesn't mean they wouldn't like to in some degree. <laughs> or whether or not they have worked it so they can still manipulate and control through the framework that is established. Oh, indeed. That's, that's well said. Uh, Julie, good morning. Hello. Yes, Julie. 
I lived I lived overseas for over a decade, and coming back to Australia, I noticed everyone felt very dumbed down, and there's very little arenas, safe arenas for rational discussion. And uh, the violence of the replies are, are quite disturbing when people do speak up about anything. And about the fear factor, there's a good basis for fear because if you look in the Quran, um, they're told to make war on the believers, that's a quote, and for those who oppose Islam, quote, put them to death wherever you find them. Julie, can I just ask you, have you read the Quran? I have looked into it a little bit as far as this issue is concerned. And can I ask you where you looked? In the Quran, 9, um, page 73, and 4, chapter 4, 3, 36 to 91. Julie, can I, can I, I mean, I haven't got time to do it, but I guarantee people could quote several yes. verses from the Bible that would be very negative as well. Well, I don't know about anyone going out being told to go out and kill people because you don't hold the same religious beliefs. All right, Julie, we're getting way off course here. However, Peter, this is a good example of the very strong and firm beliefs that people have. It is. You know, I think, there's, I think there is something to, to that caller's point in that appeals to fear aren't necessarily just about, um, you know, our... our uh, worldly concerns. I think um, you can certainly use uh, any, um, well, most religious viewpoints as a lever um, towards that fear as well. Uh, and in some senses, uh, disturbing ones as a justification for that fear, whether your fear is of um, another culture, uh, another nation, uh, another gender, whatever it might be, you might be able to buttress that fear with some religious doctrine um, that makes you feel justified in what you do. So I think there is there's an element of that in play there. Do you think that things will change, Peter? Do you, but do you think things will change politically and it will change the environment? Well, yes, I mean, things always change. Um, it, it will change, but what won't change is how we're built. Um, that's not going to go away. Um, and we, we, you know, we're, we're, we're the same as we were 10,000 years ago. So um, I think it's, it's very optimistic to imagine that simply by changing our society will change what we are. Peter, thank you very much for joining us.